Well, I got a wake-up call this week. Holy smokes. Seems to be getting more and more wake-up calls. I don't feel like I'm getting any sleep, but I sure get a lot of wake-up calls. So it's Friday night, and our nine-year-old grandson, Jeremy, and two of his nine-year-old friends were spending the night out on the farm with us, and that's always a lot of fun. And uh, they were really nice kids. These two friends of his, really well-mannered kids. That's an important part of the story here. And, uh, you know, it was just getting dark, and they'd already been out there early enough to go run around in the woods on the farm down to the creek and stuff, and Karen had already made them a really nice nine-year-old dinner, you know, the whole deal. And uh, Afterwards, then, I'd given them a nine-year-old hayride, the little small tractor, small trailer behind the tractor where I can really bounce them around a lot and stuff, you know. And uh, I had a good time, and it was just getting dark, and I'd built a fire, you know, and we're sitting out back, and we're roasting marshmallows. Karen's bringing stuff out for s'mores. I mean, hello, does it get any better than this for nine-year-olds, right? It was getting dark, and they said, hey, we need to play some tag, or they had different names for it, but it all boils down to the same thing, right? And somebody had to be it. Karen had already provided them flashlights so they could play this in the dark, and they were fussing a little bit about who was going to be it. And I said, well, I'll be it. I said, in fact, I'll be so it that I will hide somewhere where you will never find me. And they're like, oh, it's on, right? I said, you got to count to 30 so I can go hide. And you know what? I really don't trust you guys, so go inside and count to 30, right? <laughs> I want Grandma to supervise you. So they're walking inside. As they're walking through the door, and I'm getting ready to go, I hear one of these nice little boys say this. Let's go inside and count while the old man hides. <laughs> I tell you what, I really hid then. <laughs> See if they can find this old man. And they're out there scouring around behind the barn with their flashlights. and I'm hiding under the trailer down there in the wet, cold dirt, <laughs> thinking, old man me, will you, kid? <laughs> they looked and looked and looked, and finally, finally they said, okay, we give up, we give up. And they were 15 feet from me the whole time. <laughs> so I didn't have anything to do with the message. I just thought I'd share that story with you. <laughs> Power, this old man's going to power his way through this series and the power of your life. Because the truth is, people, you got power in your life because of your relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says He has deposited power in you. Jesus said this. He said, go into Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, and when He comes upon you, you'll receive power. You'll receive power. And you've got power living inside of you. Being a Christian isn't just a matter of deciding to believe a certain thing and then to wait until you die to see how it all works out. It's about coming into a dynamic relationship with the living God now, isn't it? You know what I'm talking about. I mean, it's happening. It's on. He wants to fill you with his Holy Spirit and fill you with his power. And we talk a fair amount about the expression of that power around here that we'd, we see and we'd like to see more of. And we commonly talk about it in terms of, you know, healing and evangelism, you know, deliverance, all kinds of cool things that we've seen God do. But really been trying to focus on 
on uh, maybe some of the more accessible elements of the power that you have within you. And so, for example, we started one week and we talked about the power of covenant relationships, that you have inside of you a power to give in covenant relationships. You have inside of you a certain quantity, if you will, of power to release into relationship with other people. And uh, we focused on covenant relationships because we've been using the life of King David as our guide here. There's our study for understanding this power that God has put in our lives. And, and we noticed how David and Jonathan had that covenant relationship, and we talked about what that was. And uh, I just wanted to say, really, it's really about all the relationships that we have. We have power to bring to somebody. We have power to release from ourselves in a merciful relationship with other people that God can really bless and get a lot of glory from. You know what I mean? And uh, these, these relationships, I just want to real quick talk about them on six levels. First of all, there's your relationship with God. This is, this is the center, this is the central desire of our hearts. Blaise Pascal said that we're all born with a God-shaped void, that we're born with this desire to know God and all this kind of wicked, unhelpful stuff that we do to ourselves is a, is a perverted expression of the desire that we really have for God. And so that at the center of our relationship circle is our thirst for God, you and God, through Son Jesus. And that's a covenant relationship, as we've talked about. And then outside that circle, we have what I've been calling covenant relationships. And if you're married, I like to think of it in terms married plus two. If you're married... God means for you to have a covenant relationship with your spouse. This is a very, a very powerful, life-giving, enriching, irrevocable relationship that God makes between you. Karen and I enjoy a covenant relationship. You know us, we're very different from each other. We're wired very differently. And God has brought us together in a powerful covenant relationship. And I think we also have a capacity for a couple more of these relationships. Uh, probably not a lot more, because it's... It's really, a, it's really a very special kind of thing, isn't it? And then beyond the covenant relationships, we have what I want to call the yoke fellow relationships. Now, if you were in attendance at the, the, uh, the last Philippians study that I finished up last Sunday night, this will mean a little more to you, where Paul says, I thank God for you, my loyal yoke fellow. And the Greek word here is suzagos, which is a kind of a, a, co a covenant, but it's an expression of a very close relationship. So, you know, you got your relationship with God, you got your covenant relationships, and then you've got those other people that you're just drawn to, aren't you? There's just a natural chemistry as kind of a subset of the whole church. You know what I'm talking about? Say yes, or we'll start again. Okay, the, the Buckeyes won yesterday. You can relax, all right? Okay. Man, sometimes it's like pushing a rock uphill in this service. You people, come on. So you've got these other, other, other relationships. You're just drawn to some people. Now, you don't have the capacity to have close relationships with everybody because there's just not enough of you to go around, right? But then if you go to the next level, I want you to think of, in addition to your yoke fellows, you have a relationship with the fellowship. And by that, I mean the fellowship of believers that you're a part of. Sometimes you call it a, a local church or a congregation. And you have, you have special relationship with everybody in here, right? Look around right now. I mean, look at, see if you can find somebody as weird as you in here right now. I mean, just look. Just turn your head a little bit. Okay, look, these are your people. You, these are your people. You did not come here by accident. You were drawn to this fellowship by the finger of God. He carved, he carved a path 
and you fell into it, and here you are, and you're stuck here. You're stuck here. This is your fellowship. It is God's intention for you to be here. You can't change fellowships or churches like you change grocery stores because it matters where God leads you and who God has you with. I mean, if you, you, know, you shop at Meyer or Kroger or Giant Eagle, you don't care who else is there when you're there, right? You're, just, you're going to get your stuff. It's about you. And in fact, if you run into somebody that you know, it's like, hey, it's like bonus, right? Surprise. In most cases, it's like, hey. <laughs> you notice how when you run into somebody, you always check out their cart? <laughs> and you try not to? You try not to get caught? Honey, they're getting Twinkies. How come we can't get Twinkies? <laughs> when, where you shop, you, you don't care who else is there. It's irrelevant. That's not true of churches. And you can't change churches like you're changing grocery stores. You're short-circuiting your rela- the relational aspect of your life. You've got to sit still. You've got to stay in a place long enough to sin against each other and forgive each other and do the stuff Jesus talks about. But you've got your fellowship. These are your peeps. Beyond that, we have a relationship with the church, and by that I mean the capital C, church. Anybody who calls on the name of Jesus is part of the church, and they can be different than us. They can have all kinds of funny names on their signs like Baptist, Methodist, and Lutherans, and Episcopalians, and Roman Catholics. Is it true? It's true. There are people who park their cars in all kinds of different lots other than the vineyard, and they love Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they're your brothers, and they're your sisters. And you have power to have relationship with them. Not fussing about how they set their table. Who cares? What's on their table is what matters. Is Jesus on the table? That's what matters. So you have a relationship with with the church. And then beyond that, you have a relationship with the world. The whole world we're called to have a relationship with. And uh, the Bible says, for God so loved the what? God so loved the church. God so loved the vineyard. God so loved your home group. God so loved the world. He loves us. He loves, he loves us. He, no matter which side of the fence we're on, he loves us. He loves us. And we love the world. I love the world. Can we talk a second? Is it just me, or is it sometimes easier to love the world than it is to love the believers? I love the world. I love the people of the world. So do you. We have power to invest in these relationships. You know, you're saying, I don't know if the power of God will ever work through me to heal the sick or whatever, but he will work through you to invest in these relationships if you're discerning about them and if you... You're intentional about them. Now, if you think about it, this is a reflection of the pattern of Jesus himself. If you think about it, Jesus' primary relationship was with his heavenly Father. And he was forever disappearing and hanging out with the Father, right? And he says, I only do what I see the Father doing. So his primary relationship was with the Father. But then he had Peter and James and John, if you read through the Gospels, who were always getting to go on the little field trips with him, you know. Mount of Transfiguration, whoo, did you bring your lunch, you know, all that. And then the other nine. We're around him like Yokefellow. And beyond that, there was a, a greater number of people who were following him. So the pattern of Jesus is to be discerning and intentional about these relationships. Because in reality, we only have a, 
a finite amount of us to go around, yes? Have you noticed that? And sometimes your plate just gets so full, and you have to dial back and simplify and focus on what's important. Who are the important people? And doesn't mean one is more important than another in terms of value, but who's more essential in this whole scheme of things for you? And who are you more essential to? Does that make sense? Because you have to make some choices along the way. Because you can't have these close relationships with everybody, and if you try, it'll drive you mad. Right? This is probably a good time for me to clarify something actually about this church, since we have a limited capacity for relationships. Just a good moment. I'm going to take it. And that's that I'm going to use three words to help you understand what's going on in the church of our size. And the first word is all y'all. Okay? <laughs> now, all y'all, as many of you know, now correct me if I'm wrong at any point here, all right? Wow, wow. I'm feeling really nervous now. I feel like a theology professor just came in the room, you guys from the South. Now, all y'all, that's everybody. That's all y'all. That's all, all, that's why it says all. It's not y'all. That can be smaller number of people, right? If I would say, y'all going to dinner after this, I don't mean all y'all going to dinner with us after this, right? But I mean some other, so we got all y'all. That's everybody. Now, with our church, that's about 1,000 people now. If everybody shows up on the same day, it's about 1,000 people. That's a bunch. Now, look at me. I'm just one man, right? And I love all y'all, and I love y'all. But I can't have close relationships with all y'all, right? Or I can, not with y'all. But I'm the pastor to be called at this point as we've, as we've worked through this. You know, at one point this church was just Karen and me. Hope somebody shows up today. And now look at all that God's done. And the development of leadership and staff and stuff here. So my, my role as senior pastor is to give pastoral care to all y'all. So to me, you're just one big mass of eyeballs. Okay? <laughs> Now, at that second level, you got y'all, right? So, well, what about y'all? Who's going to take care of y'all if I'm busy taking care of all y'all? Can you guys help me out here? They're not getting it yet. Well, that's why we got Pastor Tony. He takes care of y'all. And we've got Pastor Adam with the youth group and stuff. And, you know, a group can be y'all. It's not all y'all, but a subset of all y'all can be y'all. All right? And so we've got Nancy, who runs our children's ministry, and taking care of y'all. And, you know, as Pastor Tony leads the life group ministry here, and that's it. Your life group is, is y'all. Now, there's one more word you need to know, and that's yuns. Okay? <laughs> I learned this one in Pennsylvania from my Pennsylvania <laughs> friends, actually, yuns. And it was such a strange thing to me, because they talk weird out there, man. And so they go, hey, I need, yuns, I need yuns to red up the living room. How many know what that means? Yeah, some of you do. So they get spray paint out or what? Red up means like pick up, clean up, you know, organize. But yuns, yuns is like, there, Michael, you know, it, it sounds plural, but it can be singular. You just yuns. Who's going to take care of yuns, right? That's where Pastor Tony comes in again, right? So when you have an issue... 
when you have a situation in your life, you see how important it is to be plugged in to a y'all group? Maybe we should call them that instead of life group. A y'all group. Because it's there that yuns are going to be taken care of, right? Is this making sense to anybody? It is, isn't it? Frightening. All right. Now, so you have a life group leader, right? And something's going on in your life. You're in the hospital or something's going on. And that your life group leader comes and takes care of you. Right? There you go. Now, we have a deal with our life group leaders that if they feel like they're getting in over their head, they need to talk to P Pastor Tony because he takes care of y'all. Right? Right? Now, if it gets past Pastor Tony and gets to me, you're in trouble. <laughs> I'm the last person you want to see coming into your hospital room because the news ain't good. Okay? <laughs> Ever. So when you're sitting there after your after your big toe surgery or whatever, going, how come Pastor Tom doesn't come and visit me? No, you don't want the news I would be bringing, okay? All right? Because I got to, if I, if I concentrate on taking care of all y'all, and we have good, qualified, healthy people to take care of y'all and yuns, then we've got a church, right? Does that make sense? And if I spend too much time trying to take care of yuns or y'all, I lose track of all y'all. Because for crying out loud, I'm just one man, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Is it a deal? Yeah. All right. I'd love to come see all of you in the hospital. I'd love to come to all your baby showers. I'd love to come to everything. But you know what? I'm just one man. Okay, great. Let's move on then. Uh, that was relationships. Okay. The second kind of power that Rich brought so beautifully last week was the power of generosity. Was that a good message or what, man? Rich really brought the freight, you know? Man, elder in our church, I mean, how many sermons have you started, started out with auctioneering, right? That was awesome. He did just such a great job. I'm not going to try and re-preach his sermon. For more information, just go to richjenkins.com, okay, on the power of generosity. Actually, don't go there because I put that up there as a joke and then I clicked it. See, if there was an actual one, this, this guy's a jazz musician in New York City. <laughs> All right? But he's not very good because he only has one date on his calendar, okay? So I, 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 things are tough there. But we've got power to be generous, generous with our mercy, generous with our grace, generous with our stuff. We have power, and that's power. That's not just obligation, but that's the release of God's power. Today I want to talk with you about the power to do the right thing. The power to do the right thing. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 24 and 26. Lord, we invite your presence to come and, and to unpack this for us. Uh, you've blessed us so much with this example from King David, and we want to know what you had in mind by inspiring it. So we invite you to come now in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Samuel 24 and 26. Well, by now in this series, we've already well established this serious tension that existed between David and Saul. King Saul was the finishing up king, and David was the about-to-be king. And uh, Saul was having some very, very serious troubles of his own. It's hard to really imagine all that Saul must have been going through during this time as he's finishing up his reign as the first-ever king over the people of God. And he, he was really going off the rails. At one point it said, as Rich explained last week, that God had rejected him. And uh, 
So he, he started doing stuff that was not good, not good for anybody, not good for himself. And you remember at one point he had the 85 priests at Nob killed and their whole families and their kids. Why? Because they had been friendly to David. That's not good. That's not good. You know that something is very seriously wrong. You know Saul consulted the witch of Endor because he called out to God and God didn't say anything back and I think it was consulting her for some direction about fighting the Philistines and so he consulted a medium. This isn't good. So what we're seeing in Saul's life here is, um, is not just a person making bad decisions, but a person who's caught up in something that seems to be beyond their control. He was overwhelmed with a sense of threat from David for no particularly good reason. He didn't really have data. How many of you, like me, sometimes get caught up in anxieties that aren't supported by the data? I mean, hello? But you can't get out of it. You get caught up in the cycle of it. And uh, this is what's happening in some ways with Saul. He had a, 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 a sense of threat from David, and it all, all seemed to begin when David just did the thing that Saul had asked somebody to do, which was what? To kill Goliath. Remember a few weeks ago we visited that passage, and, and they were out fighting the Philistines, and Goliath was standing there taunting them, and Saul said, man, somebody find me a soldier who can take Goliath. And David shows up bringing food for his brothers, and, and he says, what's going on? He says, Saul wants somebody to kill Goliath. He goes, I'll do it. And he did it. He did it by the power of God. And then everything, everything split from there. Saul went nuts from there. And, uh, you know, it was partly the, uh, uh, this whole matter of jealousy that, that uh, the Bible says that people were singing this. You know, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And so this, you know, his ego was so threatened. And, and he had this, this, uh, this dispute with David, he felt threatened by him. And it was no small dispute because there were times, like in our passages today, where, where Saul would send out an army of 3,000 men at a time to catch David, um, a search and destroy kind of mission for David. And uh, the thing was, is this was an entirely one-sided war because David was doing everything he could, everything he could to stop it. Uh, it was entirely one-sided. It was all in Saul's mind. And I know how this goes from personal experience. Because uh, I recently converted from running, which I did for years, because my foot hurts. And my doctor said, it'll get better if you stop running on it. And so I, I converted over to my bicycle, which I used to ride. So I've got a, got a bike. You know, it's a hybrid bike. It's, it's tricked out a little. It's a little cool. Uh, and, and so I'll just ride. And I converted my energies over to that. Sometimes I'll ride a long way, and one day on my vacation this, this summer, I just rode to Cincinnati, and one day I just started going and didn't quit until I got to Cincinnati 108 miles later. That was a fun day. I was tired. How'd I get back? Karen was already in Cincinnati. See, I knew that, so I knew because it's uphill on the map coming back, so I'll do the downhill. And, uh, but anyway, so I, instead of running now, I, I like to work out out on this rails-to-trail thing out there by Georgesville out of the park. It's fantastic. You, you can actually ride that all the way to Cincinnati. Can I get a witness? Got that? Okay. Hallelujah. Okay. And you can ride out there, and it's a great place just to exercise and do your thing. Well, here's what happens. So you get out, and you're unpacking your bike, and there are other people getting their bikes off the racks and stuff. And guys being guys, we're always like, seeing what else is going to be on the track today. You know what I'm saying? And so I'm getting my sort of normal bike off, and I see some guy getting 
this $5,000 bike off with his two fingers, you know. And he's got all the right clothes on. He's got muscles on muscles and stuff like that. And you know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about. You can't help but do a little comparison thing. It's just natural, all right? And so I get out there. And if I get out before them and start heading out, it's always crossing my mind, I wonder when they're going to pass me. Because I know they're going to pass me. I wonder when that's going to happen. And so when I'm riding, I'm always checking out my mirror a little bit, you know. And when I see them, that's when I go. <laughs> I'll crank her up a couple of more gears and really give it to it for as hard as I can, as long as I can, you know, and see how long it takes them to catch me. Now, the only thing is, is I'm the only one who knows we're racing. <laughs> Which is to my advantage, right? Well, that's how it is with Saul. He's the only one who wants to fight here. And David's trying to do everything he can, everything that he can to stop this. And um, there were two times, 1 Samuel 24 and then again in 26, and I'm not going to read both of those. They're too long. But there, in 1 Samuel 24, there's a situation where Saul was momentarily separated from his whole army because he had to go into a cave to take care of some personal business. All right? It was Porta Cave, if that helps you figure it out. Well, the thing is, David was already in there. All right? I don't know if it was a two-holer cave or what, but actually David and a bunch of his men were in there. I don't know how this all worked back then. But they were in this cave, and apparently it was a big enough cave that they could conceal themselves. So Saul comes sashaying in to do his thing, at which time his men go, here's your chance, man, get him, get him, get him. You can end all this right now. And David doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. Instead, he does the right thing. He does the right thing, as we'll see in the scripture. He does the right thing, and he holds back his hand from doing the wrong thing that was in front of him to do, so he could stay committed to the right thing. Now, he was a little mischievous, and he crept up and cut off a piece of his robe so that later, when there was some distance between him and Saul, he could go, nah, 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 nah. Here's how close I was. Okay. Now, in the second scenario, in 1 Samuel 26, then uh, Saul had heard where David was, and sent, he came out with 3,000 of his men to catch him. And uh, while they were all sleeping, David and one of his men crept up and saw that Saul was sleeping with the spear stuck in the ground right by his head. And his friend says, I'll go get him for you. I will go drive that spear through him, and I'll, it'll only take one time, and he'll be dead. And David said, no, that's not the right thing. I know I have opportunity to do the wrong thing, and I know all my men are saying that's the right thing, but I know in my heart what the right thing to do is, and I have power to do it. And he exercised his power to do it. He did take a few of uh, Saul's things from near him so that later when they were at a distance, they could go, got your water jug here, look familiar, got your name on it. But he still, he did the right thing. I want you to notice some things in these passages about David and his power to do the right thing. I want you to notice that in both cases, David was urged by his companions to do harm to King Saul, that the people around him were urging him to do the wrong thing. In 1 Samuel 24, verse 4, 
The men said, this is the very day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. There were these guys around him saying, this is the day the Lord spoke of. Listen, there will always be people around you who will want to help you rationalize the wrong thing. They will always be there. They will always have a list of reasons to help you develop a rationalization for doing the wrong thing. They will even put it in spiritual terms. This is, the, this is the day the Lord spoke to you about. David scratching his head. I never remember the Lord saying, maybe I just forgot. There are people who will come to you in the name of the Lord, and if you're not strong enough, you'll be fooled by what they say. Listen to me carefully. All that glitters isn't gold. Not everyone who says, thus saith the Lord, is speaking the Lord's word. And you've got to be discerning. You've got to be careful. You've got to know in your heart what the right thing is so that you can know when the wrong thing comes, no matter how spiritual they make it sound. You've got to know. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. When you fix your eyes on Jesus, keep your eyes on Jesus, then when other people come saying this and that, you will be able to clearly and quickly discern the right from the wrong. But there will always be people around you who have something else to say. 1 Samuel uh, 26 Verse 7 and 8. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. There's always somebody that says, The Lord, the Lord, Lord, when it isn't the Lord. Be careful. Okay? Second, notice that in both cases, David openly recognized the anointing of God on King Saul. 1 Samuel 24, verse 6, back to that first Porticave account. And he said to his men, 1 Samuel 24, verse 6, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And David recognized that Saul was king for no other reason than he was anointed by the Lord to be king. He obviously had some strengths. He obviously had some weaknesses. But in the midst of that, God had anointed Saul to be king. Listen, there are people who are anointed in your life. There are people that God brings to you who are anointed. It's not because they're great people. It's because God's a great God, and he blesses you with people who have certain kinds of anointings that can come and bless you at different times in your life. I'm just saying, the Bible is consistent. Be very careful. Be very careful about how you think and talk about people um, on whom you have recognized the Lord's anointing. Because David's saying, man, I, wouldn't, I, I will not touch the Lord's anointed one. No matter if I disagree with him, no matter if I approve of him, I won't touch him. Same thing happened in 1 Samuel 26. In the second account, Verses 9 through 11, it says, But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, The Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug near his head and let's go. <laughs> I like that. Uh, and the third thing I want you to notice is that in both cases, David gives a clear reason, a rationale for his action. 1 Samuel 24, 9 through 13. 
So what, you know, everybody's saying, do this, do this. He's saying, I'm not going to do it. Now he tells, now uh, he's having this conversation with Saul at a distance. And he said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? You know, what are you listening to them for? The data doesn't support what they're saying. And yet you're listening to them. This day you have seen with your eyes, with your own eyes, how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of the wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. And David's saying, I am not an evil person. David's saying, I know who I am, and, and I will not kill you because I know that I'm doing the right thing. And even though you're a constant threat to me, I will not do the wrong thing to make my life easier. I will stay committed to the right thing. He knew he was right in his spirit. And then 1 Samuel 26, 23, uh, and 24, you see a development of his rationale for not harming Saul. The Lord, he says, to, he says the, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a, a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all my trouble. So what he was doing is he was trusting. He was trusting in God. He was saying, I'm going to do the right thing in the context of my relationship with God, and I'm going to let God, I'm going to let God bring the reward at its proper time. Some of you have been doing the right thing for a long time, and you're wondering if anybody's ever going to notice. And the hope that we hold on to, the truth that we hold on to, is that God notices that his faithfulness is something that will provide a reward for you. In the book of Galatians, it says that it says God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And so if we sow the right thing, if we, if we give ourselves, release the power that you have to do the right thing, even when you think you have a right to do the other thing, if you sow that, that's going to come back to you. That's going to come back to you. That's the promise of Scripture. In fact, it says in Galatians, it says that if you keep doing the right thing, that you'll reap a harvest in the right season if you don't give up. If you don't give up. You keep doing the right thing. You have power. Some friend of ours many years ago shared a saying with Karen and me that we used to encourage each other from time to time. And it's along this line. Because the truth is, is that many times we're misunderstood. It's true. And I, I, I realize the devil's a part of that, wants to break, break down relationship between you and your pastor. I get all that. And I also realize that sometimes I'm misunderstood because I'm sometimes not very clear. And I help you. I help the whole thing. But in reality, there's sometimes we're misunderstood. Sometimes we're maligned, criticized, those kind of things. That's part of being who we're called to be. We understand that. Turns out, though, after all these years, I've discovered something, that if you cut us, we bleed, just like you. And, uh, you know, I know that people are not intentional in attacking me and that kind of things, but I just need you to know that when you cut us, we bleed. And so how do we keep going? How do we just keep doing this over and over and over again? Because a friend told us this one time, 
And she said, keep doing what is right and let time prove you right. Just keep on doing what you're doing and let time prove you right. Don't spend your life giving a defense for your life of why I'm doing this, why I've made these decisions, why I'm this way. Just live your life. Do the right thing that you know is in your heart to do. Take the hits. Take the victories as they come. But let time prove you right. Let God be your judge, right? Does that make sense? Okay. Here's how I'd like for us to end. I'd like for us to think about the faithfulness of God. Because at the end of the day, our commitment, our commitment to being faithful to God is built on his faithfulness, isn't it? I mean, the reason we're still doing this day after day after day is because we believe the promise of Scripture that says God is faithful. So why should you keep on doing what you're doing? Why should you keep on? Because God is faithful. And the Bible says, said he's a rewarder of the man who is faithful and righteous. You stay with it. You stay with it. Day, one day at a time. Day by day by day. You give yourself to faithfulness because God is watching, not in judgment, but watching. He's building the reward of your faithfulness.